Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're continuing a series in the Gospel of Mark, making our way through. And uh, we're going to be reading in Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. We're going to read through verse 37 and then skip just a little section there and then go to verse 42 through the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, you can. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me or it's printed for you in your worship folder as well. Let's, let's read together, okay? Uh, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He carries on in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone, a great millstone, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire." Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. There is a back and forth struggle in this part of Mark's gospel that mirrors the back and forth struggle in our hearts. And it is really quite interesting the way you see those two things together. Three times Jesus foretold his death and resurrection. Uh, This particular instance is the second. He did this to prepare his disciples and us to prepare them ahead of time for what was to come so that they could be ready and not be surprised or at least so they're there would be some point of reference for them after the crucifixion as the rumors of resurrection began to circulate. But what is absolutely fascinating is, as you follow along in Mark's gospel, the closer Jesus got to the cross, the more he talked about the downward slope of the J-curve, if you're familiar with our terminology here. The more he talked about sliding down into death and suffering and humility for the sake of the gospel. So the closer he got, the more this became the subject of conversation. At the very same time, The disciples, as they got closer and closer to Jerusalem and what they thought would be a showdown with the Romans and so forth, they began to anticipate their exalted places in administration once he had come into his kingdom. And you see it here. You see this juxtaposition here, the way it falls side by side in verse 30. Jesus was teaching the disciples that he would be delivered into the hands of men and killed. And it says in verse 32 that they did not understand. And that becomes obvious in the very next scene where... On the heels of this teaching that Jesus is giving to them, we learn that an argument had broken out as they were traveling along the road about which of them was the greatest. Now put side by side like that, it might seem incongruous, but that is the point. That is the point. 
the trajectory of Jesus' life was towards humility. Though he was God, right? He did not count equality with God something to be held onto or grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming human, born not in a palace, but in an animal shed to a lower middle class working family. He was obedient to God all the way, all the way to the cross. Now, in contrast to that downward move, that cosmic in the incarnation, that cosmic downward move into humility, the human heart is relentlessly self-exalting. Not self-emptying. And so it makes sense that you see the wrestling here, that there seems to be a conflict between Jesus' vision of the kingdom as, a, as suffering love, overcoming evil, and the disciples' vision of power and privilege and honor. And the implication of Jesus' mission for the disciples is crystal clear. If the work of the kingdom would be accomplished through a cross and not a throne, then humility is the kingdom way. Humility is the kingdom way. And that means a number of things. But one of the undeniable things it means is if humility really is the kingdom way, then greatness must be redefined. So he says, verse 35, he says, if anyone would be first, then he must be last of all and a servant of all. And that verse is our focus, but not just for today, actually for the next two weeks, this week and next. And then honestly, all of Advent and Christmas, we're just going to circulate around this idea of humility for about 10 weeks together because I think we need to hear the lessons so, so profoundly. But here's the question for us this morning as we kind of venture out into this. How do you define greatness? It's a really important gospel question. How do you define greatness? I don't really like the the goat conversations that happen, you know, on sports talk radio and so forth. Goat, greatest of all time. Goat. I'm old enough. Um, I'm old enough to suffer. I don't like them because the the argumentation is is uh, so inconsistent as mine would be, and I don't like them because well, and also I'm I'm old enough to suffer from some pretty significant reverse recency bias. But just for fun, at the expense of just, you know, being, you, you thinking me silly. For me, for me, it's Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. Oh, there's amens coming from the crowd. The first service was dead. But I got, let's see if those amens carry through. This, like, makes me feel yucky to even say, but Tom Brady probably, I'll say like Tom Brady. Probably Babe Ruth. Jack Nicholas, not Tiger, no offense, 18 majors. Bobby Bowden, just to make you all angry, and because championships aren't everything, right? Championships aren't everything. Character matters. <clears throat> I told you, incons inconsistent reasoning. Shawshank Redemption is probably the best movie of all time, in my opinion. Uh, but if there is a, if there is an undeniable goat, the Lord of the Rings obviously would take that prize, the greatest of all time as far as books. But anyway, however you would do that, just for fun, defining greatness. And what Jesus does here is he, is he takes us through a pretty significant redefining of what greatness is in light of, in light of this cosmic movement into humility that defines his own life and ministry. And he says three things to us here. Now, I know there are only two points in the outline that I gave you. We had a hurricane this week, if you missed that, and I had to turn this in on Tuesday, and I hadn't done any sermon preparation by Tuesday. And so I did all that on Thursday and Friday, and things changed. Deal with it. I'm sorry. That's all. I don't know what else to say, right? But there are actually three things that Jesus does here, not just two. He, he says greatness requires, and therefore he demands of us, humility. 
That's the first thing. But also, secondly, greatness requires, and therefore Jesus demands of us, hospitality, especially towards those he calls little ones. And then thirdly, greatness, demand, greatness requires, and therefore Jesus demands, holiness. So humility, hospitality, and holiness. Everything starting with the same letter. The Spirit is at work this morning, brother. Thanks for singing us that song. The Spirit is here. So we got some things to talk about. Let's talk first. First, greatness requires humility. And so Jesus demands humility from those who would follow him. Now, the passage begins with his second foretelling of his death. As I've said, verse 31, if you look there, he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And again, we have to understand how against their expectations this would have been. In fact, it says in the very next verse, verse 32, they did not understand the saying. They could not conceive of what Jesus was saying here. They had no theological category for what he was, what he was claiming here. It went, against, it went against everything they'd ever been taught or believed. Even more than that, it went against the desires of their own hearts. They were hard-hearted towards this truth, is what that phrase means, because they were afraid of the implications of it being true. They didn't want this to be true. Peter had a much different vision for Jesus, remember. And so, because they didn't want it to be true, they did not understand. Now, the disciples' reaction to Jesus' teaching because it was so hard-hearted, it's fascinating. The way they respond is to begin to argue about who was the greatest. Verse 33. The adjective there is mega. Who is the mega? Who's the best? Who's the biggest? Who's the numero uno? And if you would forgive, please forget. It's the last sports analogy, I promise, for this morning. But they wanted, they wanted a, an updated ranking. After the previous weekend's games... Right? You remember what had been going on here? We talked about this last week. Peter, James, and John, they all had significant wins against you know, top 10 teams that strengthened their resume for the rankings committee. Up there on the mountain with Jesus, they saw Jesus' glory while the, those other nine pathetic guys down at the bottom, they lost to FCS schools. They failed to cast out the evil spirit in the boy at the foot of the mountain, and they're saying, it's time for an updated ranking in light of what just happened. And it's a crude analogy, but it is an analogy for the pride of the human heart. That is the pride of the human heart on display. Pride is the first sin, the root of all other sin. It's an attempt to put the self before God and therefore also before others. And pride is necessarily competitive. Pride, here's the thing, pride, a prideful person isn't interested in being great. They're just interested in being greater than someone else. Jesus is teaching about his own death and resurrection and their argument about who was the greatest, when you see them side by side like this, it's incongruous, especially since the text suggests they happened consecutively. One happened as a response to the other, and that response is out of place. Because if Jesus was, as he claimed God in the flesh, if, if God came from heaven to earth, and he came not to sit on a throne, but to hang upon a cross, then that has significant implications. Andrew Murray, in his famous book on humility, he wrote this, he said, humility brought Jesus from heaven to earth, and he brought humility, the humility of heaven with him. Humility, his humility is our salvation, he said. And so Augustine famously, when asked what the essential thing in Christianity was, he said, I would answer it this way, the first is humility, and the second, anybody want to guess? Humility. And the third, humility. 
So Andrew Murray writes in that book, it's wonderful, it's a wonderful little book. He says, true humility comes when in light of God we have seen ourselves to be nothing and have consented to part with and cast away self and to let God be all. He goes on, he says, the soul that has done this and can say, I've lost myself in finding him, no longer compares itself with others. It has given up forever every thought of self in God's presence and interacts with its fellow man as, as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself. And so the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are favored or rewarded before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten because in God's presence he has learned to say with Paul, I am nothing. Now Jesus is very concrete. Oh, you want to be the greatest? Let me tell you how. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must become last of all and the servant of all. And there are two things described in that verse. There's an attitude and an action. And the attitude is this. If you desire to be first, then you must become last. And it's a state of mind. It's a way of thinking. It's an attitude about life. Paul said, do, do nothing from rivalry or, or conceit, but con in humility consider others better than yourselves. In other words, a prideful person thinks and acts solely in self-interest. They think, you know, okay, how does this benefit me? What's, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? A humble person puts others ahead of themselves. They prioritize the needs and concerns of others. Their attitude is always, you know what, you first and then me. And that attitude takes place in concrete action. And the action is, if you want to be great, become last. And then he says, become a servant. Humble people serve others. But it's also true, see, okay, it's also true that those who put themselves to the work of serving others, whether they intend to or not, they often become humble. Parenting. I have four kids. Parenting will teach you to love. Won't it? At first, the first crowd got a chuckle out of this, but at first, you, uh, you get up in the middle of the night when you bring that little baby home because it's, it's exciting and you want to and it's all still new. And then... Like five nights later, right, or two weeks, or a month of no sleep, then you don't get up because you want to. You get up because you have to. And at first, the feelings of love lead to the acts of love, but then that reverses in somewhere along the way, the acts of love towards your children. They're actually what creates the feelings of love, and the attitude of humility often follows the actions of humility. And so don't wait for the right attitude. Just become a servant. This is what Jesus is saying. Go, well, go wash some feet. Find somebody to love and serve and take care of. Don't, don't worry about your name in, being on stage or having your name in the spotlight. Just do a bunch of good that nobody ever sees that you'll never get any credit for. Great, that's greatness. When you do stuff, not because somebody's going to see you doing it, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. That's greatness. Greatness requires humility. But secondly, greatness also requires hospitality, and uh, therefore Jesus demands hospitality from those who would follow him, especially towards those he refers to as the little ones. Okay, this is really important, and this is really kind of the fo this is where I intended the focus to really land this morning. But Jesus followed this teaching about humility in chapter nine, verse thirty-five, with an object lesson in verse thirty-six. Look what he does. He took a child. And he put the child in the midst of the crowd that he gathered there. And then he took the boy in his arms and he embraced that little boy. And then he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. Now, an important feature that we learn there of humility is an inclination to hospitality and welcome and mercy and patience and gentleness, especially towards children and other weak and vulnerable people. 
In the very next part of the passage, where he carries on this idea, he continues making the same point. Verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to to, to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, yikes. I mean, that's strong. That's strong. Jesus takes this very seriously. That's what I want you to see. And if he takes it so seriously, so should we. And what he's teaching us is this, is it matters greatly how we treat fellow sinners and strugglers and those who are most in need of mercy. True greatness and gentleness. True greatness and graciousness go hand in hand. The greats in the kingdom are not intimidating. They are welcoming and approachable and warm. Do you see that? But a few questions I think we need to ask of the text. First, who are these little ones? And the word in verse 42 describes status or rank, not necessarily age. And so not just a child, a childlike person, a simple, ordinary person, not important or connected or powerful, a nobody. And in one sense, it's a description of of every person who believes. Salvation, we know, is by grace and not works. And so to believe, you have to acknowledge that that you have to acknowledge your own nothingness and receive the kingdom like a little child with nothing to offer. You only receive. You do not contribute. You receive. And, and so you do that in humility and dependence. But that's the sermon for next week. Faith is becoming a little one. Faith is becoming, it's, it's staring down your own nothingness. It's becoming like a little child. And so we're all little ones. But even so, the language is pretty specific here. Jesus says, verse 37, whoever receives, and this is my kind of, this is the way I think it probably should be. The ESV makes it, makes it kind of fumbles it here a little bit. Whoever receives one such as this child in my name, one like this child, one who is like the child is here, weak and vulnerable like a child, that's who he had specifically in mind. So for us, all kinds of people come to mind. Children, of course, teenagers, single mothers, widows, sinners and strugglers, the person who is on their way to faith, but they're still full of doubts and questions and they're confused or the, someone who's new to the faith, but they still don't yet know their way around and so they're getting it wrong a lot about a lot of things. Jesus' heart is particularly tender towards such people. And here's what he said. He, this matters to him so much that he says, how you treat those people that you could call little ones is how you treat me. It's a really big deal. We are to receive these little ones. That word dominates verse 37. Four times it's there. It means to accept, to welcome them, to invite them in. Sinners and strugglers, children, teenagers, the outsiders, all of these sorts of people. My kids' school uh, does this really well, and I think we can learn a lot from the way they do it. When a new student starts at, at the school, they assign them a peer friend because, let's be honest, is there anything in all the world more terrifying than being the new kid in the lunchroom in middle school. I've not found it. And so each new student, to help them mitigate that circumstance that's so frightening, each new student gets a peer friend. They're given a peer friend, and the peer friend meets them at orientation and gets to know them a little bit. They show them around and make sure they know where the classes are. They exchange phone numbers so they can text them. And then on the first day of school, they arrange to meet throughout the day. And they're supposed to kind of take, take the new student around and, 
introduce them around. They invite them to eat lunch at their lunch table and to try to introduce them to their, their friend group. And it's an ama- I really, it's an amazing, amazing moment of hospitality. And I love that the school does it. And my kids have been peer friends. And a lot of the times they've remained friends with the new kids they helped. And that's a great illustration, I think, of what Jesus is saying to us here. We are to welcome and receive and invite and make room for for these little ones who he describes as little ones. Now, the opposite of this is what he warned of in the very next section, beginning in verse 42, that instead of receiving and welcoming and showing hospitality to these little ones, we can block them. We can put obstacles in their way. We can make it hard for them. A different time, people were bringing children to Jesus in the very next chapter, actually, in Mark, and the disciples they gotten a little too big for their britches. Remember what they're thinking? They're thinking, we got to get ready for, you know, the, the administrate, administration, um, you know, assignments we're going to have in the kingdom. They got a little too big for their britches. And so as they were, the, they were bringing the children, they blocked the children from being able to get to Jesus. And it says that Jesus got red-faced angry with them. And he said, how dare you? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And the language in verse 42 here is strong. It is strong, and the word in noun form refers to a stumbling block. And so the lesson is this. Don't put obstacles in the way of sinners and strugglers that cause them to fall away from the faith or to struggle in unnecessary ways in the faith. Don't create rules that are unnecessarily stringent. Lower your expectations. Show lots of patience and grace and kindness because we're all, we're all barely making it through this thing called life. The phrase cause to sin there, cause to sin really means something like cause the downfall of. So you can be, Jesus is saying, you, if you're not careful, you can become the cause of another person's spiritual shipwreck by failing to make room for their weakness, by unnecessarily discouraging them in what is an honest struggle and causing them to give up because they think, you know what, I'll never meet the expectation. I'll never, I'll never be good enough. I'll never live up to the standard. And parents, you can do it with your kids, and we can do it to one another. We can do it as a church if we're not careful. And have I said this? Have I already said this? I think I have. Jesus takes this very seriously. He says, if you're the cause of someone else leaving the faith, giving up on the faith, because you're overly harsh and critical, if you discourage them right out of their faith, then you are bringing judgment on yourself, not just for your sins, but for their sins too. Teenagers, listen. Listen. If you are encouraging your friends towards wrong behavior, if you're encouraging them towards disobeying their parents, be careful. Be careful. This applies to you. Fathers, if your kids are so beat up by your high expectations and your displeasure that they leave the faith as soon as they leave your house because they've come to believe that that is what God is like, you will answer to God for that. It's a very serious thing. I know I'm kind of being preachy, more so than usual, but it's a very serious thing. The Apostle Paul said, instead, welcome one another with the welcome of Christ. Right? So greatness requires humility, and humility empowers hospitality. And here's the gospel mystery, that God does not despise us because of our sin and weakness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. Think about how Jesus welcomed sinners and strugglers in the Gospels. He invited them to eat with him, to have a relationship with him. That's what got him in so much trouble with the religious folks. He showed hospitality to them without requiring they first get their act together. 
Because that is God's heart. And so if you're here this morning and you think God hates you because you keep messing up and that's what you've been told, let me deconstruct that for you. Welcome, you're in great company. We're all screw-ups. We all keep getting it wrong, and then we have to change. But the problem is, is then as soon as we start to change, we do that change part wrong too. And yet, and yet what we learn very clearly in the, in the scriptures is God, in light of Jesus, does not grow weary with us. Isn't that great news? He refuses to give up on us, and so we are trying to, we're just seeking to refuse to give up on one another. His grace is sufficient. And the church... The church and all the world should be the place where it is safe to be a sinner, where it's okay to struggle. And so you're welcome to join us. Because true greatness, greatness requires humility and it requires hospitality. But thirdly, and this is the part that I had to bring in at the end because it's here, uh, it requires holiness also. And so Jesus demands holiness from those who follow him. Uh, we have a profound impact on one another. We can be an incredible source of encouragement or we can be the cause of another person's spiritual shipwreck. And so Jesus goes from the warning about not being the cause of someone else's sin to a very vivid description about being on the alert about the causes of sin in our own lives. So let's read together, beginning in verse 43. Let's just kind of summarize what he says all the way down to verse 50. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than, than with two hands go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin cut it off if your eye causes you to sin tear it out he says for everyone will be salted with fire and salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will you make it salty again so have salt in yourself he says now this is really this is really intense i'll be i'll be completely honest with you um i and as we looked at the scope of of mark i because i can be a chicken i thought you know what we probably don't need to talk about that i was i was planning on skipping this part because it's just, it, I don't have time. This, it's, gonna, it's, there, it's easily confusing here. And so if you have questions, you've got to talk to me later because we just don't have time to get into all of it. And I'm, I'm fearful that I'm going to do a horrible job of trying to explain it to you because it is so intense and it's supposed to sit on our hearts that way. It's a call to mortification, to put sin to death, to have a no-tolerance policy, not only with sin, but also with the causes of sin in our lives. And it's hyperbole, of course, G, G, and I, I feel like I have to say that because you do know that people for 2,000 years have been taking this literally not hyperbolically. I mean, there have been Christians who have literally done this, cut off hands and other body parts and so forth in order to obey him here, but it's hyperbole. Jesus is not literally telling you to cut off your hand or your foot or pull out your eye. He's using those images to describe the seriousness of your approach to the stumbling blocks in your own life because sometimes it might be something you're doing with your hands. And sometimes it might be something that you're seeing with your eyes. I mean, as an example, if social media, for example, makes you feel like you're doing life wrong and everybody else is doing it right, if you see the fall decorations on Pinterest and other people's homes and you feel discouraged and envious and it just gets you all worked up and you spiral into despair or whatever, then can I be your friend and say, get rid of it. Get it off your phone. Deactivate your account. Do whatever you have to do because sometimes it's something we're doing with our hands and sometimes it's something... We see with our eyes, and sometimes it might be where you go with your feet, but whatever the case might be, Jesus is saying you have to be proactive in dealing with these causes of sin in your life. And here, here is how I'm going to try to summarize all of this for the sake of time, because here's, I think, boiling down what he's really saying here. He's saying no one escapes the fire. There's no escape from the fire. Nobody escapes the fire, but it matters greatly which fire. 
And without holiness, without this sincere, intense, proactive approach to the causes of sin in your life, without holiness, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And it's a bad trade-off to keep your hand or your foot or your eye and get hell in return. But that's exactly the warning. That's what Jesus is warning these people, and he's what's, it's what he's warning us of. And I know what you would say. I said, wait a minute, what about the gospel? What, you know, what about, what about the good news of Jesus? Isn't all, yes, it's true. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, our substitute. He died and descended into hell. And if your faith is in him, then you're safe from those fires. Jesus has already endured them in your place. Isn't that great news? That is the good news of Christianity. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, if you put your faith in him, you've been saved from the wrath to come. You with me? Whoo! But here's the thing. There's another fire. Not the fires of hell, but the fire of purification. And no one escapes the fire. That's Jesus' point. If you don't take the causes of sin seriously, and as a result, you become the cause of sin for others, then those those really, the hellfires await you. But if you do take sin seriously, and if you commit to a life of holiness and mortification and putting sin to death, if you make the radical sacrifices necessary to put sin to death in your life, then you go through the fire, but it's a fire that cleanses and beautifies you. And that's the language in verse 49. You're salted with fire, it says. And it's a strange, it's a strange mixing of metaphors that even the commentators are confused by, to be honest. So we don't, I don't have, I mean, we don't, you know, everybody's confused by this, but it's something like this. It's probably temple language here, describing the process of sacrifices made in the worship of God. And so what he's saying is, your life, if you proactively go to battle against sin, your life will become a living sacrifice. You'll be holy and pleasing to God. But it'll be a fire. It'll feel like a fire. Parts of you will burn up and it will be painful and hard. But it's nothing in comparison to the ultimate fire. When somebody's upset or just belligerent, the kids these days, <laughs> sorry, they say they're salty. Have you heard that? They're being salty. Now that slang is perhaps the best way to, to explain what Jesus is saying here. He's saying be salty, but only about your sins. Greatness requires humility, it requires hospitality, it requires holiness. Because the great person, the great person is not afraid of the fire because in Jesus the ultimate fire has been quenched. It's an act of profound humility, it's also an act of profound hospitality to take your own sin seriously because of the way it can negatively impact the people you love and care for. And it's a way of being thoughtful of others and listen, that's true greatness. Now I've used this before, just to finish. Uh, but I read it again recently. So bear with me, it's been on my mind. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he has this scene in that book where he pictures uh, a parade in heaven uh, and it's, this parade's being thrown in the honor of this woman who uh, he describes as being, her face uh, being of unbearable beauty. And there are two people watching and the one begins by trying, he says, is it, is it? He's, he's undoubtedly thinking, has some person of earthly renown in mind and his guide responds by saying, no, not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And the man says, wow, she seems to be, well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. And the guide replies, he says, I, she is one of the great ones. <laughs> He's coming to see me, man. <laughs> 
He says, she is one of the great ones, but you've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. So I love the, I love the, the words of this old hymn. I didn't write who the writer was, but the hymn writer says this. He says, though of myself I nothing am, I'm dear to God and to the Lamb. Though I have nothing, I confess, all things in Jesus I possess. I can do nothing, Lord, tis true, yet in thy strength can all things do. Nothing I merit, Lord, I own, yet shall possess a heavenly throne. And then I thought of that scene when I thought of this line. He says, thus something, Savior, may I be, nothing in self, but all in thee. And when in glory I appear, be something, yet nothing there. That's the call to greatness. Would you pray with me? So, Father, give us courage to obey what you teach us here. Because it is, it's scary, as we're going to sing, bid our anxious fears goodbye. It is scary. It's scary to obey you in the call to take up our cross and follow, to slide with you down into the bottom of the J-curve, into humility, becoming last and becoming a servant of all. And yet, you are not... You are not, um, that is not a threat. It's an offer of life. And so we need for you to overcome our hesitancies and our fears and our worries. May your spirit prevail upon our hearts that we might be people that follow you, even into our own nothingness, knowing that in you, um, on the day of glory, Fame in this country and fame in that are very different things. So help us to live with the true apprehension of what greatness really is. And then make us great so that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the truth of that song is uh, that he does lead us. Now, it's true that he leads us by calling us to take up our cross and follow him. He says, where I am, my disciples will be. And so just as Jesus went on this cosmic journey down into humility, he leads us down into our own places of humility, but it is the way of leading us to the promised land where ultimately all our fears will subside. But as you, as you do that fearful thing, here is, here is the promise of this benediction. No matter how far down this next week or in this next season of your life, you might slide down the J-curve. You never go so far as the Lord's face is not shining upon you. So receive these words of benediction. May they comfort your heart and soul as you go now as he sends us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.